get over your Bibles to Luke chapter 11 once again, and uh, we're going to continue in our study of Jesus' model prayer. We're going to continue studying this phrase by phrase. We spent the past couple of weeks on the first phrase, which is Father. And as we understand and comprehend Him as our Father, something of what that means. I want to move on to the, the second phrase, and that is, Hallowed be your name. Now, just by way of reminder, this is a model prayer. And in Jewish culture, the rabbis would teach their disciples to pray, just as Jesus' disciples say, teach us to pray. They would teach their, their disciples to pray using these kinds of prayers. They would be sentence prayers, and then the rabbi would say, all right, now pray this sentence. So they would, they would say a sentence, and then before moving on to the next sentence in that, their model prayer, they would expand on that sentence. And as they would do that, then they would move on to the next phrase, and then they would expand on that. Move on to the next phrase, expand on that. So Jesus, in effect, gives them that kind of model prayer. It's not meant to be just prayed repetitiously, uh, mindlessly, uh, rotely. It's meant to be prayed um, very uh, slowly, meditating on each phrase and expanding uh, in your own mind and with your own language, again, what that phrase means. And so this is why we're teaching through it. So we want to expand our understanding of what and how to pray. Okay? So the second phrase we want to look at is hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. When we say that, when we say, hallowed be your name, what are we saying? What are we saying? Not just the words, but what does that mean? Hallowed be your name. Lord, that your name might shine forth gloriously. That your name be exalted above every name. Hallowed be your name. That, Father, your name be honored, that your name be esteemed highly by us in every arena of our life, by our attitudes, by our thoughts, by our words, by our actions. Hallowed be your name. Father, that men might see our lives and glorify you in heaven. Isn't that what Jesus teaches us? That men would see our lives, they'd see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Do you remember the angels the evening of Jesus' birth? When they appeared to the shepherds that night? And they sang glory to God in the highest. 
Hallowed be your name. Question. Is God's name hallowed in our society? Is God's name esteemed highly in our society? Is God's name glorified? Does it shine forth gloriously in our society, in our culture today? No? Are you sure? Are you positive? Could this be a trick question? I would submit to you that God's name is not hallowed in our society. Should it be? That's what we pray. Hallowed be your name. Why do you suppose God's name is not hallowed? Why do you suppose God's name is not esteemed highly in our society? Why? What? Because people don't know God? Okay. Okay, people are doing evil deeds. They don't want to be seen in the light. Okay, anybody else? Dale? We're selfish. Good. Anybody else? Larry? The church hasn't done its part. I would suspect, I would suggest, I would offer to you this possibility. God's name is not highly esteemed in society because God's name is not highly esteemed in the church. Are we not to be salt and light? Doesn't Jesus say that men would look upon your lives, they'd look upon your good deeds, they'd look upon your behavior, your very attitudes. Who's he speaking to? People who he's called to himself. He'd say that men would see you and they would give glory to your Father in heaven. (coughs) Are we not to be light and salt in society? I would suggest that God's name is not hallowed in our society because God's name is not hallowed in the churches. It's not hallowed in the churches. More and more you hear, if you watch very much TV, you hear preaching and evangelism that has become the kind in the American church that conforms more to the mentality of a bumper sticker. Superficial, self-centered, and simplistic. Is the gospel simple? Absolutely. But it's not simplistic. There is depth and richness to the gospel. But much of what we hear today is very superficial and very self-centered. And because of that, God's name is not hallowed in the churches. In fact, in many church environments today, in the American church, God's name is trivialized. God's name is sloganized. It's not hallowed. 
lives of Christians across this land are not being lived in such a manner as to truly honor him. Which is true? Which statement? I am the potter, you are the clay, or I am the clay, you are the potter. Huh? From God's point of view. Doesn't God say, I am the potter and you are the clay? How many of us view ourselves as the potter and him as the clay? What do I mean by that? Molding him into our image. Reducing him to our image. Rather than allowing him to be the potter. Oh, if I allow him to be the potter, that is going to hurt. You ever seen a potter? Working with clay and making a pot. He's working, he's working, he's working, and all of a sudden there's a flaw shows up in the pot. What does he do? <laughs> Takes the clay off, mushes it all down, starts all over again, shapes it again. Can you hear just hear that clay going, ow! Oh! Oh! <laughs> That's us. We're the clay. He's the potter. Yes, Lord. Ow! I don't know about you, but I don't like being reshaped again and again and again. I would much rather reshape him. I would much rather tell him, now listen, God, this is not necessary. Let me tell you how to do things. After all, you are really there for me. After all, isn't, don't we say Jesus is a gentleman? He will never force his will on anybody. <laughs> I love that. I love when I hear that because I don't see it in the Bible. Does God impose his will? <laughs> is he sovereign? Is he Lord? Is he the Almighty? Will his will be done one way or another? And yet we treat him as if he's not. We treat him as if he's there solely for us in our needs and our wants. And that we ring the bell and he shows up like the heavenly butler. But when he shows up late or he doesn't show up, what's our attitude? Where are you? Prayer doesn't work. Any number of things. Am I getting across what I'm Taking God's name seriously depends on taking God himself seriously. If you don't take God seriously, you won't take his name seriously. And taking him seriously depends upon sound biblical perspective. I've got to know the scriptures. I've got to know the scriptures. I've got to know what this book says. How am I going to know him? How am I going to know his will? How am I going to know how he does what he does? How am I going to know anything about him of any kind of substance if I don't have a solid biblical perspective? Not suppositions, not somebody else telling me.
You can't learn enough just coming on the weekend, can you? Can't learn enough just sitting listening to a sermon or getting the tape and listening to the tape over and over. You, you pick up some things. It's important that we gather together. It's important that we worship the Lord together in the congregation. It's important that we hear the word. But this isn't enough. You see, each one of us have to go and each one of us have to pick this book up and each one of us must study and, and learn and understand and develop a sound biblical perspective. Because if we don't have that, we won't take God seriously and we will not take His name seriously. We will end up, like so many others, trivializing Him and trivializing His name. You gotta be a theologian, folks. You gotta be a theologian. Yeah, but I have such a hard time reading. Commit yourself to it. Commit yourself to it. To know His Word. And you'll get better at your reading. God will give you the grace to do it. But if you never start, you're not committed to developing a sound biblical perspective in your life you'll be found wanting. Hallowed be your name. How do we profane God's name, do you think? I picked out four things, four suggestions, if you will, ways in which we do find ourselves profaning His name. In the church. In the church. You say, I would never profane God's name. Well, listen to my four examples and see if you don't end up Pointing yourself out. The first. When we use his name, the name of God, we use his authority, we claim his authority as a blank check for our own decisions and for our own activities. What do I mean by that? Well, you you don't know the word, and so you launch off into something and say, God told me to do this. Or God bless my efforts. Or I'm doing this in the name of the Lord. When in fact God never directed you to do it. You can't find anything like that in His Word. You just marched off on your own strength, in your own weak human wisdom, leaning on your own understanding into this activity. And you said, God bless this. Or I'm doing this in the name of the Lord. History, the history of the church is replete with examples of people doing this. Embarrassing examples. The Crusades. The Crusades. The Inquisition. If you talk to history buffs and they're not Christians and you ask them, would you like to be a Christian? They say, what? Let me recount for you the history of you Christians. Slavery. In the name of God, slavery and the slave trade flourished. The KKK, even today, under the banner of God. Oh, there are lots and lots of other historical examples. Cases of 
evil things done in God's name down through the centuries that bring enormous discredit and scandal to the name of God and to the cause of Christ. Even in our own recent history, even in our own recent history, God has been invoked and used to justify American nationalism. That America is God's country. Well, it is, really. But not in the sense that so many people have used that and thought that. God is the God of the universe, isn't he? All the heavens and all the earth and all they contain belong to the Lord. Doesn't that the Bible say that? We can't just single out America and say, you know, this is our manifest destiny. (laughs) God has been reduced in our own country by the church in our most recent history to being the mascot for conservative white middle class establishment in its agenda. Well, wait a minute. I thought God was a Republican. No. No. God doesn't claim any any party affiliation. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not an independent. He's not a Perot supporter. He's not a... God is God. Beloved. You see, when we confuse the kingdoms and the purposes of this world with the kingdoms and purposes of God, we are bringing shame and dishonor to his name. And the church has been guilty of that. There's a great book Chuck Colson has written. It's called Kingdoms in Conflict. It speaks to this very issue. And he indicts the church. Chuck Colson is a prophet to the church. And he indicts the church for this very profaning of God's name. Secondly, we bring disgrace to the name of God when we profess much and possess little. Hypocrisy. And we're hypocritical. We profane his name. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Turn turn back to Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 through 23. Jesus speaks of people who hypocritically use his name. Using his name vainly because they don't know him hypocrites not everyone he says verse 21 he says not everyone who says to me lord lord calling him by name lord lord not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my father in heaven many will say to me on that day lord lord Did we not prophesy in your name? 
and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Did we do wondrous things in your name, Lord, Lord? And his response to them, Never did I know you. Never did I know you. Not only I don't know who you are, never did I know you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, when our, when our mouth doesn't match up with our life, or vice versa, our life doesn't match up with our mouth, our testimony, we're hypocrites. We're hypocrites. Here were people who did powerful, miraculous things in his name. They evidenced power, cast out demons, apparently. At least they, leastwise they, they say they did. They prophesied in his name. That's what they say. They did miracles. But something was missing. What was it? A lifestyle of what? Obedience. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. See, it's not the spectacular. We're all enamored with the spectacular, aren't we? Whoo, miracle. Did you see that miracle? When the Antichrist comes and false prophets arise on the scene, the Bible says they'll do miracles, wondrous things. Why? To draw people off. We can be easily distracted. You know why you have to have a sound biblical perspective? So you don't get fooled. You don't get faked out. Miraculous stuff is pretty spectacular. There's a whole lot of people really heavy duty into miraculous stuff. But you look at the substance of their life and there's not much substance there in terms of obedience and faithfulness and growth, maturity. It's all fluff. They're hypocrites. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. Write that down. Look it up later. Ezekiel 33, 31. God, through the prophet, says of his people, Oh, there's words of devotion on their lips. But their hearts are full of greed. They say one thing, but God looks on the heart. We fake each other. We say nice things. We flatter one another. And we think we can flatter God. Can't we? No, he looks where? He knows what's in there. Paul writes to Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. And he tells him, there will be people who claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. They claim, no, I know God, I know God. Yeah, but look at your life. Don't tell me you know God, look at your life. You're not walking by faith. You're not walking in obedience, you're not trusting the Lord. Yeah, but I know God, I love, I love Jesus. But your life's a mess. There's no obedience. There's no faith, there's no stamina, there's no standing. There's no joy, there's no peace. You're a fraud. Yes, but I love Jesus. As if the testimony is enough. 
The testimony's got to be with our what? Our life. So that men would look at your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Not that they would just hear your mouth flapping. The church today is full of a bunch of hypocrites. As long as things, and everybody's nice and smiling, we say, I'm thankful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful. Ha! (laughs) The truth be known, you're not thankful. You're bitter, you're angry, you're frustrated. Far from thankful. Far too many people. Far too many people. In our lives, it's vital that we remember that whoever, wherever, whenever, however, whatever, we are always representing who? Our Heavenly Father. I tell my son, wherever you go, you represent me. I said, I'm, I'm sorry about that. It's a big burden to carry. But wherever you go, you are my son. And I fully expect you to represent me appropriately. I don't ever want to hear of you living your life, saying or doing things that reflect badly on me. Is that right? You better believe it's right. You better believe it's right. Doesn't God say the same thing? I want you to live your life in a manner so that when men see you, they give me glory. We're Christians. We're Christians. No more Jew, no more Greek. No more slave, no more free, no more male, no more female. We're Christians, Paul says. We're new creatures. We are part of a brand new humanity. A brand new humanity. And we are being conformed to the very image, the very likeness of Christ himself, God's precious son. The firstborn among many brethren. We're a new humanity. We're Christians. First and foremost, before anything else, before you're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, you are a Christian. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. And our lives demonstrate what? What do our lives demonstrate as Christians? I'll give you a hint. Galatians chapter 5. Oh, good. Okay, some of you have got it. What are they? Who, who knows them? Love. It's getting a little, little flabby back, a little flabby back there toward the end. <laughs> Long suffering. Thank you, David. When people look at our lives, do they see? and experience from us genuine love, God's love? Even the puniest among us, even the most insignificant, even the the most wretched among us, 
even, humanly speaking, the most insignificant among us, when people look at you, when people engage you, interact with you, what do they experience from you? God's love? His peace? His joy? His kindness? His goodness? His faithfulness? What do people, what do people see in our lives? Aren't those the kind of qualities that everybody aspires to and everybody longs for? How many want peace in their life? Real joy. Love abounding. How many want to be known as kind and good, gracious, self-controlled? Don't we? Now God says, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it in your life. You just walk after me. Keep in step with my spirit. Keep in step with my spirit. Oh, but it's so hard. You don't know my circumstances. It's all right. In your weakness, my strength will be perfected. Trust me. Stand. Stand. Oh, it's so hard. Stay there. Don't bail. Don't quit. Don't run. Trust me. I know. Oh, that's right, God. You are sovereign. You know everything about my life. I can trust in you. I can wait upon you. I can say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God, you have given me everything I need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. Very great promises. Do we perform poorly at work? Sloppily? Do we perform poorly in school? Just slipping by? Or do we invest ourselves Because we want him to be glorified. What about our home life? Do we live in our homes like we want to glorify the Lord? Whatever, however we do, reflects on our Father in heaven. Amen? Surely. There's a third way that we profane his name, and that is using the Bible to support heresy. Using the Bible to support heresy. See, this is his word. This is his word. And when you take his word and you support heresy with it, you profane his name. The cults do it, don't they? Sure. They quote from the Bible all the time. Who of us have not had people from the Jehovah's Witnesses come to our door? Most of them know volumes of Scripture uh, more than the average born-again today. They run you ragged. 
They just peel scriptures off right and left. They spend hour upon hour upon hour memorizing them. Why? Because their salvation depends upon it, according to their theology. Right there, there's heresy. But when they mix heresy with the Bible, does it produce life? Never. Never. They have no hope. Their doctrine has changed time after time after time after time. If you know anything about the Jehovah's Witness doctrine, the Mormon doctrine, or any of the cults, the doctrine is constantly changing. But they're wedding heresy to the scriptures. That does not produce life. It produces death. And it profanes the very name of God. Because it's His Word. It's His holy Word. It's His divine Word. It's His sacred Word. It's His eternal Word. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3... We see a very real threat to the church. This is not only in Peter's day, but it's every succeeding generation of the church has had to confront these issues. I want you to notice what he says. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now notice this next sentence. They will secretly, underline that word secretly, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Not obvious, not blatant. They're not just going to come in and say, oh, we want to teach you some heresy. (laughs) Secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, let's read on. Even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Now, notice this many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into what? Disrespect. When you begin to follow after heresy, even if you don't know it's heresy. Because it was secretly introduced. And it sounded good. You're sucked off into the dark. And you bring, by how you live your life, you bring the way of truth into disrepute. When you bring the way of truth into disrepute, what about his name? Brought into disrepute. Verse 3, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Godless myths and old wives' tales. They just make up stories. And unless you have a sound biblical perspective, you don't know if what they're saying is true or not. This is why Luke says of the Bereans, when Paul preached, they went home and they looked to see if what Paul was saying was the truth. They checked it out. Sadly, most Christians are not checking it out. 
Sadly, most Christians go home and they've done their religious duty for the weekend. They've been in church. They threw a few bucks in the bucket when it passed by. And that's it. And we wonder why God's name is not hallowed in society. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Now, there's the Apostle Paul again writing to Timothy, who pastors the church at Ephesus. Young guy. Lots of stuff going on in the church. And he says to him in verse 2, Preach what? Preach what? What else is there? What else is he to preach? The Word. There's nothing else there, is it? Preach the Word. Preach the word. Preach the word. Let's read on. Look at verse 3. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. (gasps) Doctrine. Oh, doctrine. (laughs) I just want to be friends with everybody. Why do we have to deal with this doctrine stuff? You must have a sound doctrine. Biblical perspective. Sound doctrine. Men will not put up, he says, with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Don't teach me sound doctrine. Tickle my ears. Entertain me. Make church fun. Don't tell me that I must work to study. Make it fun. Make it enjoyable. Make it easy. Entertain me. That's the condition lots of churches today, beloved. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. You say, is that going on today? Oh, is it ever going on today? Is it ever going on today? It's going on in more quarters and over more issues than I even care to describe. I want to read you a quote from an article I received in the mail. I thought this was interesting. I'm not going to read you the whole article. I did on Friday night. It was a bit much. I'm just going to excerpt it. There was a time when Christians gave testimonies of hope. They extolled their wonderful Savior who had given them new life. They told of how Christ worked in their lives to enable them to live pleasing to God and to grow in the fruit of of his spirit. They could say that they had experienced the goodness of God and moreover their lives matched their testimonies. Now, however, the kind of testimony the world hears from Christians is how troubled they all are and how they need special psychiatric clinics to manage their lives. 
No longer are such Christians walking by faith in victory. Instead, they are barely recovering through some combination of worldly methods and a bit of the Bible. The New Testimony to the failure of God's grace in the lives of Christians is being seen and heard by the world. Atheists and secular humanists are even further convinced that anyone who follows the God of the Bible is bound to be depressed and to have all sorts of problems directly related to his or her faith. Christian psychologists and psychiatrists, with their dependence on the world's ways of counseling, and with their numerous advertising testimonials on Christian radio, are proclaiming to the world that Christ is not sufficient and that Christians are in very bad shape. Here is the response of the world to these Christian testimonials. And I quote excerpts from an article. Let me share with you the title of the article. It's written by a Dr. Edmund D. Cohen in the secular humanist publication Free Inquiry, summer 1993. Here's the title of his article. Quote, And now, Psychiatric Wards for Born-Again Christians Only. Unquote. Here's what he says. When I began assembling literature from these programs, I found in them an unexpected and crucial validation of my own work. The born-again treatment providers' renditions of the psychological disorders they treat corresponded exactly to my rendition of psychological disorders Bible indoctrination fosters. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying the Bible is unhealthy. He's saying looking to the Bible, studying the Bible, meditating on the Bible, living out what the Bible says is unhealthy for you. In my own research, he goes on to say, on the born-agains, I found out that behind their facade of euphoric calm, people marinated in the Bible and surrounded by the born-again church subculture tend to be depressed and suffer from a sort of generalized emotional distress, partaking of anxiety, worry, and fear. This is what a secularist sees the church representing today. This is what the world sees. You turn on any Christian radio program, what do you have? You have sue somebody, get a Christian lawyer and sue somebody. You need a Christian psychiatrist. You've got to go to this Christian care center. What is the world hearing? And sandwiched in between all these commercials is what? Maybe, if we're lucky, a little Bible teaching. But the Bible teaching is no longer even on the radio. What's on the radio? Therapy sessions. Therapy sessions. Therapy sessions. I don't mean to be offensive. I don't mean to offend anybody here. 
I know I may be running that risk. I want you to understand what it means to profane the name of God in public. What about hurting people, though? That's what the church is for. That's why we gather together in our small groups, in our homes. So people come together, and if they've got problems, if they're struggling, if they're battling against the devil, the flesh, if sin has got a hold of them, that there's prayer, there's encouragement, there's accountability, there's community. The church. The church. The community of faith for generation upon generation upon generation has been able to do the job. We are not unaware of the schemes of the devil. He is constantly trying to fake us out, draw us off. While Cohen may not understand what it truly means to know Christ and to live by his indwelling presence, he clearly sees what is going on in the pseudo-Christianity of psychological treatment. He goes on to say, and I'll just summarize, that if Christians who were in these various programs, if they knew what was really going on, they would be absolutely, in his word, is chagrined to find out how much of the parlance, how much of the the program is lifted directly from secular mental health sources. And psychological and theological jargon, he says, are mixed indiscriminately. What Cohen is clearly saying is that these psychological treatment providers are using the methods of the, quote, the despised secularists, unquote, and in doing so, demonstrate that Christians need additional imported material to help compensate for something lacking. Yes, the message is loud and clear. The psychologized Christian testimony of the 90s proclaims that Christ is not sufficient and that Christianity has some real problems. Beloved, every generation has had to deal with heresy. Every generation has had to fight for the pure milk of the truth of the Word of God. To not mix it with anything else. Not to adulterate it. Not to peddle it. To love it. Fourthly, we degrade the name of God by vain repetition, irreverent sloganizing, or by actual cursing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Or some such expressions when they just roll off our tongues as essentially nothing more than the Christian equivalent for, hey, that's really great. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> when we're out in the world and someone tells you some, some good news, you say, that is wonderful. I'm so happy for you. But you just all sit in the church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And it, we just say it mindlessly. We don't even think. We don't even, we're not paying attention to what we say. It's just something to say. That seems it's part of Christianese. 
It's a special language that only Christians say inside the church walls. Casual and or unnecessary use of God's name is prohibited precisely because it wears away our sensitivity to the enormous reverence we owe it. Hallowed be your name. When I trivialize his name, when I repeat it unnecessarily or in some vain, useless way, every time I do it, I wear away at my sensitivity, at my sensitivity, to the enormous reverence due his name. Do you know that the Jews would not even mention his name. They would not even use his name. The Jews would not even write it down. They wouldn't even spell it out. They wouldn't. Well, how would they refer to God? Whenever they were reading the scriptures, when they came across one of God's names, they would stop. They wouldn't even pronounce the name. They would say, the name. (laughs) The name. They were so scrupulous. They were so careful They did not want to profane the name of God. They wouldn't even mention it. In Leviticus chapter 24, the case is recorded of a boy who blasphemed the name of God and God commanded Moses to have the boy spanked, put outside the camp, stoned. Stoned. I was reading the Bible one day with my son, and we were reading through the Old Testament, a passage, you know, and it came upon disobedient children. <laughs> Purely serendipitous. It was a coincidence. We were reading through it, and it was just there, there, were, there was a passage about, dis, about you know, disobedient children, and, and God commanded the disobedient children be taken outside the camp and stoned to death. My son read that. He says, Dad! I said, You read God's word. He said, that's awfully much. Don't you think God's cruel and mean? I said, no, that's an object lesson. And I began to explain to him what an object lesson was. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Were they an object lesson? Huge object lesson. Verse 15 of Leviticus 24. God says, say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. God's serious about his name? Sure. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Do we misuse or unnecessarily use his name? You ever said, Oh, my Lord. Oh, God. For God's sake. I mean... I hear that all the time. And out of the mouths of Christians. These things are a form of blasphemy. Using his name carelessly, without thinking, irreverently. And what would you suggest if you lived in the Old Testament would happen to you if you were found doing this? They'd stone you. Not today. We're just so casual about God and casual about his name. We see bumper stickers 
water bottles, mugs, and yes, t-shirts. Plastered with slogans. They bear such statements as this blood's for you. That's blasphemy. Or Jesus, the real thing. Or there are even Christian, if I can say this, products on the market. One is called Pops Almighty Christian Popcorn. I kid you not. What have we done to the name of God? We are peddling, selling, making a profit. We are no different than the temple in Jesus' day when he went and he threw out the money changers, the profiteers, the racketeers. You see, if we don't worship the true God in spirit and truth, in spirit and truth, we open the door to pure speculation. We open the door to superstition. You know how many superstitious Christians there are? Superstitious. And apostasy. Why does God take his name so seriously? After all, he's God. Can't he take care of himself? Isn't he big enough not to worry about it? When we were kids, we said sticks and stones and break my bones, but names never hurt me. Ha! Is it important to have a good name? Who's interested in having a good name? All of us ought to be, right? Sure. What if you don't have a good name? Tim? What if you don't have a good name? What if your name, you're in business and you're a professional man and presumably you have a good name. But what if all of a sudden your name gets slandered? That affects you personally as well as economically, doesn't it? Is it important to have a good name? Is it important to guard your name? You want other people to esteem your name and you also highly? Certainly. It's no different for God. It's important that we esteem his name because in esteeming his name, we esteem him. We esteem him. In ancient times, names were given to children for two reasons. As a blessing, you're pronouncing a blessing by naming a child a certain name. But also you would hope that that child, you would train that child to live up in terms of their character what that name meant. You would draw out, raise up that child so that they would fulfill what their name meant. Knowing somebody's name, knowing God's name in Hebrew thought meant a richer worship, service, and greater intimacy with him. When you, when you just meet somebody, if you forget their name, isn't that a shame? What about when you remember their name? Is that important? Is that special? Sure. There's a little more relationship there, isn't there? Or at least basis for it. And you meet them again, and you spend more time with them, and you get to know more about them. You get to know more their name, who they are. Greater relationship, greater intimacy. 
Same thing with God. I've given you several references to some of his names. We'll go through these quickly. These aren't, this isn't an exhaustive list. It's just representative. Many, many, many names in the scriptures. The first one we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim. That's the Hebrew word for God. It's a plural form. It refers to God's omnipotent creative power. What's he just about to do? He's about to create all of creation, isn't he? In the beginning, Elohim. Shortly on, in the, then into the second chapter and third chapter, we see God's second name, His personal name. This is Yahweh. Yahweh. And when it's translated into English, it's always translated Lord, but in all capitals. It's all capitals. When you read your Old Testament, you look into that passage, you see the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. <coughs> Yahweh is His personal name. It comes from the Hebrew verb to be and it is or represents if you will the the very essence of God's character that he is a self-existent self-sufficient sovereign who depends on no one and nothing but rather is the one on whom all depend we see it reflected in Exodus chapter 3 Remember when God came to Moses, appeared to Moses, there was burning bush and stuff, and God talked Moses into going down and getting the people out and so forth. And Moses said, well, all right, who should I said sent me? He says, tell him I am sent you. I am that I am. That is the ultimate expression of self-existence and self-sufficiency and sovereignty. I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. Now, interesting, if you read John's Gospel, several places throughout John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the the living water. I am. Every place we read that, it's the very same word translated from Exodus chapter 3. I am. What's Jesus saying? I am that I am. Tell him I am sent you. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 and 11, we see it once again. He says, I am he. Before me there was no Elohim formed, no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh. And apart from me there is no Savior. Another name, El Shaddai. Found in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. is translated God Almighty or the Sovereign Lord. El Shaddai. Yahweh Yarihis. Or we know it as Jehovah Jireh. First used in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham is called upon to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, it means the Lord will provide. And it refers, of course, ultimately to God's provision for Abraham and all of his spiritual heirs by God's sacrifice of his own son. God will provide. Yahweh Rapha. 
is the Lord heals. Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. For I, the Lord, am your healer. I, the Lord, am your healer. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Exodus 17, 15, referring to God's role in providing security for his people in the presence of their enemies. Even when your enemy is present, Yahweh is your banner. He is your protector. Even in the presence of your enemy. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Gideon was scared to death that God was going to put him to death. God said, be at peace. So Gideon says, the Lord is peace. Yahweh Sid Canoe. That's a U at the end of that word. It's not an A. It's a misprint. Yahweh Sid Canoe. The Lord, our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Nobody else. Not even my own self. Lots of other names could be listed, but each name no matter what it is, teaches us something about the very nature, the very character of God, and as well, something about His relationship to us as His people. So whenever we undermine His sovereignty, we blaspheme His name as our sovereign Lord. Whenever we lose sight that He is sovereign. Lord, my life, things are terrible. But you're sovereign. I know that you know everything. My hope and my trust is in you. To do otherwise would be to deny His sovereignty and hence then to profane His name, blaspheme His name. See, our behavior Whenever we question his provision. God, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you've given me. I don't like my lot in life. Rather, Lord, I am learning to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I'm learning, Father, to, to understand that whatever you choose to provide in any given moment of my life is sufficient. Easy to say, huh? But you see, it's a process of growth in faith, growth in confidence in Him. Say, Lord, I don't understand all these things, but I trust You. I know You, and I know Your provision, and You are faithful. Powerful testimony. But to do otherwise is to blaspheme His name. He's no longer your provider. You're no longer thankful. If you seek to... Establish your own righteousness to accredit yourself to God. You fall into a work strip again. Prideful, arrogant. Look at me. Look at how great a Christian I am, we say. You deny his name, Jehovah or Yahweh Sid Canoe. He's your righteousness. He is. We're utterly, absolutely dependent upon him. You see, to hold God's sovereignty, to hold His providence, to hold His provision, His righteousness, His peace, His holiness in high esteem is to reverence God Himself. To discredit any of His names is in effect to pour contempt on the very person we worship. Pour contempt on Him. We trust Him. We believe Him. 
all that His names declare to us? If we don't, then we are profaning His name. And finally, we're not to misuse the name of God because it is by that name that we are saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. You know, the, the Bible, much of the Bible, Old Testament especially, is couched in um, the form of an ancient treaty, ancient Near Eastern treaty. And the, what they, they would set these treaties up, and, you know, much like present treaties, a big superpower would guarantee a, a country its freedom, its sovereignty, its, uh, its own place, if you will. And uh, we've seen this most recently, you know, with the Soviet Union, and, and it set up its sovereignty. We had the British Empire and the Dutch Empire, and you go back to the Spanish Empire and so forth. All the way back, the Roman Empire. But in the ancient Near East, you would have what's known as great emperors or suzerain kinds of kings. And they would conquer great, great masses of territory, but they would allow these states that they conquered to live relatively sovereign. But they would, and the states would have to pay tribute, protection money. And uh, their protection money guaranteed them in this treaty that if they were ever attacked, the attacking people would have to contend with the great and mighty emperor, the, the suzerain king, versus this vassal king. And so, you know how it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When one of these small vassal kingdoms was under attack, they would call upon the name of their great king. And he would come and march against this attacking enemy. And so the Bible, the Bible context is in that same kind of picture. We are in a covenant relationship with a great king, are we not? And a great father. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And not only must we hallow God's name because we are saved through calling upon it, this is also the very name that we bear as children of God and brothers and sisters of Christ himself. In the Old Testament, God's people were referred to in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, as my people who are called by my name. Ooh, is God jealous for his people? Oh, absolutely, he's jealous for his people. You're called by my name. You're my people. As opposed to a people who would make a name for themselves, like back in the times of the Tower of Babel. In the New Testament, we're called Christ's brothers and God's children, Romans chapter 8. Unlike any name we could ever make for ourselves, the name of the Lord, Proverbs 18 is a strong tower defending us from the forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Is his name great? Is it to be esteemed highly? Yes. Father, we bless you. We worship you tonight. 
May your name be hallowed by us in our work, in our play, in school, and in the home. Father, may our politicians speak the truth and stand for righteousness. May our educators execute their calling with excellence. May business people, O oh God, carry out their honorable vocation with uncommon dignity, integrity, and respect for their clients, consumers, employers, employees. God, we pray that Christians become widely known again as the best workers an employer could hire. God, especially in these days of trying economic times, that employers would be banging on the doors of churches because they know that Christians are the best employees, the best workers. God, we pray that the homemakers and the home builders, the mothers and the fathers, would make it their purpose to create dynasties of faith, their children taking their own places in society as salt and light. God, just as moral scandal followed on the heels of doctrinal ignorance in Hosea's day, so we today are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Father, we pray that your name no longer be blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. We pray for the day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. A day, God, when your name will be truly hallowed. Bless you, Father. Amen.